Revelation chapter 4. We've finished the letters to the seven churches in Asia. Letters in which Jesus speaks of the condition of each church, what needs to be corrected, what is of value. And in each we find promises spoken to those who overcome, that is, those who stand with Jesus, who is the overcomer. And as we've seen, these promises are expressions, different expressions, of the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation. And I I think oftentimes our vocabulary is far too limited. We talk about getting saved or being born again, having eternal life, and those things are certainly biblical expressions. But in each of these seven letters, we find Jesus speaking of the gift of eternal life in different ways. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will give you a crown of life. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with his name written on it, known only to him who receives it. I will give authority over the nations. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame down and sat with my father on his throne. These are wonderful expressions of the gift Jesus purchased and has given to his people. As John writes toward the beginning of this book, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Last Sunday we saw the last letter, the letter addressed to the church in Laodicea, a church about which nothing good could be said, a church which had no idea of their true state, as they were self-reliant and thought that they were fine. A church that had so compromised the gospel with their self-sufficiency that they had nothing of value to offer. They found nothing of value in the gospel. Not cold water to quench somebody's thirst and refresh. Not hot water to soothe and to heal. But simply tepid, lukewarm water of no value whatsoever. And it is to this church that Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What tender words as Jesus deals with a self-confident church, a church that is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus speaks so tenderly. To a graceless church, which saw no need of grace, we hear words of amazing grace. Today we come to chapter 4, in which John is brought into the presence of God. But I think that as we begin, we need to understand something about ourselves. We've been looking at this in Sunday school. We are people of the modern age, and as such, we carry many of the flaws of the modern age. One of those flaws is, I think we've lost... Not entirely, but we've lost much of the capacity for wonder and awe. I think part of this is due to the scientific understanding. We think we understand everything. It's due to the democratic impulse in politics. It's due to our growing technological capacity to simulate the miraculous. Uh, In film, on television, on our computers where we have a virtual reality in which anything can happen, but nothing actually does happen. 
I remember many years ago as a, a student in Bible college teaching fifth grade boys in Sunday school and, and talking about uh, the miraculous appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, how the disciples were in a locked room, they were scared, and, and Jesus suddenly appeared there. And wasn't that amazing? And one of the boys said to me, no, I, I, they do that on Star Trek. You know, I saw someone being beamed in, and, and for him, for Jesus to appear, it, it was not miraculous at all. I tell my students when I lecture on the seismic shifts that occurred in the 19th century that a new trinity has emerged in the West. Science, which will allow us to know everything. Technology, which will allow us to do anything. And the market, which will allow us to buy anything. And so wonder and awe are replaced with explanation and sort of artificiality, a virtual reality, if you wish. One of the aspects I think that the modern world has tried to get rid of, which is critical to the Christian faith, is fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but the modern world says you have nothing to fear but fear itself because we will explain everything so that you will know what is going on. In the most recent Mars Hill audio journal, uh, they had several segments on Nathaniel Hawthorne because last year was the bicentennial of his birth. And one of the reviewers noted, Hawthorne's work forces us to observe the essential moral value of fear. The moral value of fear. This hasn't been a popular thing to notice since the Enlightenment's disenchantment of the world, and it is completely at odds with the therapeutic ethos that now reigns. If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, however, it is so partly because such fear protects us against the fatal presumption of mastery. A fearlessness much more to be feared than fear itself. You know, in the modern world, we're fearless because we've got it all figured out. And now when we are brought into a situation when fear is appropriate, when awe, reverence, wonder are appropriate, I think it doesn't happen to us automatically as people of the modern age. The book of Revelation, I think, in many ways, though it was written centuries ago, is helpful in fighting against this modern age which wants to remove all sense of awe, all sense of fear. Do you remember John's reaction when he first saw the resurrected Christ in chapter 1? One who was like the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, what's wrong with you? Come on. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Because John was definitely afraid. Time and time again, we will find in the book of Revelation that humanity, and that includes us, tend to look merely at the surface. We do not look beyond. We explain human history and its events in terms of forces, physical, economic, political, social. We are blind to what is really going on, like the church in Laodicea, which said about itself, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And what did Jesus say? He saw the reality that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So now as... We follow John as he is brought into the presence of God himself. I think we may have to work on a sense of awe and wonder and fear at being in the presence of God himself. 
Let's read the whole chapter through, and and then we will look at this uh, portion by portion. Verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne... There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The chapter begins with a summons in which John, looking up, sees an open door. And we're reminded of the letter to the church of Philadelphia, the church of the open door. It is an open door into heaven. And he is called by the voice that he heard in chapter 1. And the voice says, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. After the letters to the seven churches, John is now going to be given insight into the events that are going to happen after this. And in order for him to see this, he is being brought into the presence of the King of Kings to hear his plans and his purposes. And then John will relay this message to God's people. By the way, we see this in the Old Testament, in the commissioning of Isaiah. We read this at the beginning of our worship today in Isaiah chapter 6. and Ezekiel chapter 1, as God calls them to be prophets, he calls them into his presence to see his glory and then to receive his word. And as John is commissioned to hear God's plans in order that he might convey it to God's people, he must see it from God's perspective. And therefore, he is brought into where God's presence is that he might see things as God does. And to accomplish this, John is in the spirit. We saw this expression in chapter one. And as we noted, it doesn't refer to some type of subjective personal experience or attitude or frame of mind. It does refer to a definite experience. John is brought into a state of prophetic vision. This is not simply John being brought up and and seeing things on his own. Um, This is the language that we hear used in the scripture of prophets, that they are receiving revelation. This is not something John could see on his own. The Spirit is giving him insight. 
God who is the determiner of all things, who has a right understanding of the world, is now giving this understanding to John. And so John must begin there with God, who is the center of all reality. And when John gets to heaven, he sees one who sits on the throne. And what is striking, and I don't know if you caught this as we were reading it, is John's description of him who sits on the throne. And while it conveys its message visually, it really is quite restrained. It doesn't give us anything that we could make an image of. Those of you who are artists, there's not, I don't think, a painting to be painted here of God because he is described in terms of light. Light which passes through jasper and through carnelian. You might remember that Moses warned Israel about their experience in coming face to face with God to receive the law. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself, uh, yourself an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. In other words, you, didn't see, you saw something, but please do not, do not make the mistake of reducing it to an image and then creating an image that you would then fall down and worship. The language, by the way, that John uses here, if you know the Old Testament, should be familiar because it is very similar to what Ezekiel sees when he sees one who sits on the throne. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 1. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be from his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and a brilliant, light, a brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance above him, around him. I'm sorry. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I mean, a lot of likes in there, or what seemed to be, or what appeared to be. Um, Ezekiel doesn't want to be nailed down because what he sees cannot be reduced to an image. For John, it is color and texture that is conveyed in simile. On the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper, uh, for us, is a specific rock, but in the ancient world was used to describe all types of quartz, which could be anywhere from red in color to amber to actually green. Um, it could be opaque, but it could also be clear, because we read in chapter 21 that like jasper, clear as crystal. Carnelian is sardius. It's a reddish stone. I think in, in both cases, John's readers are supposed to have a vision, and as are we, of something through which light passes. That the focus is on light rather than on the jasper or the carnelian. And that's about it in terms of what John says of him who sits on the throne. He then describes what is found around the throne of God. There is a rainbow resembling an emerald. Um, Ezekiel also described a rainbow. Um, here, it, he, uh, John describes it as resembling an emerald. Then there are the 24 elders. We will look at them in a bit. And then from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And again, we're reminded of what happened at Sinai when the Lord met with Israel to give them the law. 
On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Everyone in the camp trembled. And in fact, they were so terrified by this that they finally say, Moses, we're going to stay here. You go up and you talk to God because we can't handle this. This, this thunder and lightning and these rumblings. And so when John comes into the presence of God, this is what we should expect to find. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And here we are not left to wonder about this. These represent the seven spirits of God. And as we've seen, this does not refer to seven Holy Spirits, the one Holy Spirit, but who is seen in his entirety, uh, the essential nature of him. He is the sevenfold spirit. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. And here, I think we almost have to shift gears because when we think of seas, we don't think of something that is like glass. We don't think of something that is smooth. We think of waves. We think of things, something that is moving, not something that is static, something that is motionless. And yet, in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, we find time and time again when God appears to people and they meet with him, there is this, this clear surface, this glass-like surface, um, and there people meet God. In uh, Exodus chapter 24, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. In Ezekiel, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome. Later in this book, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing on the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. See, the heavenly sea is so tranquil as appear to be glass. And it stands in sharp contrast to what we know of seas here on this earth. Here they're marked by waves, by movement, even by chaos. And one thinks of a great tidal wave, the one that occurred last year in Southeast Asia. I find it worth noting that in Revelation 21 we are told, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Um, I just find that amazing that that's one of the things that is mentioned. So that when John comes into the presence of God, what he sees is peace and calmness. Not, not chaos, as we associate later on in the book uh, with the beast. That we see that the beast comes out of the sea. That it is out of the sea that there is chaos. In the book of Psalms, time and time again, uh, the sea is referred to as a place of, of chaos and, and a place of trouble. In the presence of God, we find a sea that is smooth as glass. And then, in the center around the throne, there are four living creatures. Now I want to look at the four creatures and the 24 elders as John describes them. Attending the Lord in his heavenly court are 24 elders and four living creatures. We have the 24 elders. There are 24 thrones that surround God's throne. There are 24 elders who are seated on them, and they are dressed in white, and they are wearing crowns of gold on their heads. So who are these 24 elders? Uh, 
I think the key is not so much the elder, the term elder, as it, as it is in the number 24. I would say that whenever we find the word elder referred to or used in the Bible, it always refers to a human being. And so I'm assuming, I, and I think it's, it's a safe assumption, that these 24 are human beings. They're not angels, angelic beings, cherubim, seraphim. These are human beings. So what can the 24 refer to? Well, some have suggested it's 12 plus 12. When you look at the New Jerusalem, it has 12 gates, and on the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jerusalem is built on 12 foundations on which are written the names of the 12 apostles. So 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, you put the two together, you have 24, you have God's people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God's people of the New Covenant, and together they make 24. Um, I do think that what is indicated here by these 24 elders are the people of God. I think it is the church of God, the people of God. But I don't think it's the 12 plus 12. I think the answer lies elsewhere. In the Old Testament, in the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 24, the priesthood is divided up into 24 orders or 24 divisions. And that is, each division was to serve at a particular time for a particular period of time. I think this is what John means. This is what his readers would understand because that had been the order for over a thousand years. When you say 24 and you speak of being in the presence of God, I think someone who knows the Old Testament would think the 24 divisions of the priest in the Old Testament. And so what we find here are 24 elders sitting on thrones. The thrones indicate that they are kings. The 24 indicates that they are priests. Does this ring any bells? Does this make does anything come together for you? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. The church is made up of those who have crowns, who sit on the throne. This is how Jesus describes the gift of salvation. But we are also priests. That is, we are there to serve and to worship God. As Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Kings and priests. These 24 elders represent God's people. Both Old Covenant and New Covenant, but they represent God's people. What about the four living creatures? These four living creatures are found in Ezekiel's vision as well. The first living creature is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. They were covered with eyes in the front and the back, and then we are told again that they have eyes even under their six wings. What are these four living creatures? I would suggest to you that they are cherubim. Cherubim is the plural in Hebrew of cherub. But usually when we think of cherubs, when we say that something, that a child looks cherubic, we think of this cute little pudgy kid with wings on. I mean, that's what we think of in terms of cherub. Cherub, in fact, are awesome creatures, and they show the presence of God. They are indications of the presence of God. In Psalm 18, he mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. 
Revelation 7.1 After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. I think that like the elders, it is not only the living creatures that is important, but the number four, which is also important. Why the four different types of faces? Well, others have suggested that it's, it could be one or two reasons, perhaps both. Um, that on the one side, people say this represents the different qualities of God, that God has majesty, he has strength, he has wisdom, he has loftiness. And that may be, but I'm inclined more toward the second. That is that these four creatures represent creation. The number four, the four corners of the earth, as it is described in the Bible, the four winds, the four points of the compass. They represent the different creatures, the different aspects of God's creation. John Calvin wrote, by these heads, all living creatures were represented to us. And the fact that they're covered with eyes represents the omniscience of the creator whom they worship. Um, it may be that certain qualities, again, are indicated. The rabbinic, there's a rabbinic saying that the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beast is the lion. And the mightiest among all is man. Um, that may be. One writer has also put it this way. The four forms suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in animate nature. Nature, including man, is represented before the throne, taking part in the fulfillment of the divine will and the worship of the divine majesty. I don't know about the qualities, but the writer, I think, really hit on something at the end. That all of God's creation participates in the divine will and participates in his worship. So that when John comes into the presence of God, when he sees the throne of God, he sees it surrounded by his creation, those that represent his creation, the four cherubim, and by those who represent his new creation, the church. The four living creatures represent his creation, the 24 elders, his new creation, the church. And they worship God. We will read in chapter 5, verse 13, the Lord willing, next week. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Remember in the hymn, we sing, this is my father's world. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. The hymn that we sang earlier today, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. They do. And John, when he is in the presence of God, he sees it, that all of creation, represented by the cherubim, and Christ's church, Christ's people, represented by the elders, worship God who sits on the throne. In chapters 4 and 5, we will find five different expressions of praise. All of them are in poetic form. Only the middle one is called a song and is accompanied by harps. Um, we will begin here, here in chapter 4, as we hear the worship that occurs in the presence of God. What do we hear from God's creation? That is, from the four living creatures. 
We are told day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is, they speak of his perfect holiness, threefold, threefold holiness, his omnipotence, he is the Lord God Almighty, and of his eternality, who was and is and is to come. But, but notice in what John has said about this proclamation, I've just broken down into three parts. Um, it is you know, the fact that he is holy, um, that he is almighty, he is omnipotent, and that he is eternal. But if you will look at verse number nine, um, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. Stop a minute. They give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. I think we get the part about glory and honor um, for the statements they made about God. That he is holy, that he is the Lord God Almighty. But, but what about thanks? I don't remember hearing anything in here uh, in terms of thanksgiving. By the way, there's only one other place in the book of Revelation in which thanks is given to God. And there it is in response uh, as the host is singing of God's salvation and they give thanks. Here, the creatures speak of God's attributes, nothing of what he has done. Because we give thanks. For, God does something, we give thanks. In chapter 7, God has given salvation. The saints give thanks. The angels give thanks for what God has given And what is going on here? I think we should listen. We should learn. God is to be thanked for being who he is. The all-holy, the almighty, the ever-living one. We do not simply give thanks to God for what he has done. We should do that. But in our worship, we are to give thanks to God for being who he is. And these four cherubs, the four cherubim, as day and night, they say these things. John says they are not only giving glory and giving honor, but they are also giving thanks for who God is. So that's what we hear from God's creation. What do we hear from his new creation? Not so much in response, but following the lead of the four creatures, the elders do four things. First, they fall down before him who sits on the throne. And in doing so, they are showing reverence to acknowledge who he is. But let's just stop a minute. Let's be honest. Can you ever imagine yourself falling down before someone to acknowledge them? Falling down on your face before someone to, to show reverence and respect? It just seems so foreign to us. And I, I don't know if, if you caught in the news this past week, there seemed to be a controversy that uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld was in Saudi Arabia and met with the royal family. And apparently at some point he sort of bowed his head a bit and people are freaking out. We're Americans. We don't bow to anybody. You know, we don't do that. We don't have royalty. And I think because of our democratic sensibilities, our cynicism, our sense of self, if I were to say to you, we need to fall on our faces before God, we say, well, yes, but I don't know that we would do it. We might bow our heads. I mean, as Protestants, for the most part, we don't even kneel. I mean, Catholics do that. 
So when we read of the elders falling down before him who sits on the throne, I think if we're not careful, they're just words. And, and we're so detached and so removed from it. These who represent us, the people of God, acknowledge who God is. And if we are to worship God, I don't know that we have to literally throw ourselves to the floor, to the pavement. But I wonder if we are so much like the church in Laodicea, this does not ever occur to us. You know, we don't bow to anybody. We'll bow our heads, maybe. Here we see worship as it should be done. So, first of all, they fall down before him. Secondly, they worship him who lives forever and ever. It's not enough that they fall down, but they must worship him. They ascribe worthiness to him. He is worthy. Worthship, as were the root of, of worship. And that's precisely what they say. You are worthy. They lay their crowns before him. That is, they acknowledge that all authority comes from him. It belongs to him. It will return to him. All authority comes from God. And then they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Here we find a shift from praising God for who he is to praising God for what he has done. That is, God created the world, not because he needed to create the world, not because he is dependent on his creation in any way, because, but because it was his will to create the world, because it pleased him to create. God is sovereign. He is completely independent from us. He does not need us. I think a certain heretical thread has run through the church over the years, thinking that somehow God was bored, God was lonely, and therefore God created the world. You know, that, that God wanted things to worship him. He got tired of being alone and, there, and therefore he created the world. No. He did it by his own will. When Paul spoke to the Areopagus in Athens, trying to explain to them the unknown God, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He is the creator. We are the creatures. We need him. He does not need us. And we will stop here, but as John comes into the presence of God, it will continue next week into chapter 5. What he finds is worship. God's creation worshiping him, God's new creation, the church worshiping as well. But I think the key to all of this is something that we might sort of gloss over rather quickly. And it is that God created the world. That God is the creator. It's all here throughout the chapter. We may just miss it. The four living creatures. As they are created beings. And if you're created, you must have a creator. But then with what the elders say. Um, you created all things. This scene of worship makes no sense whatsoever. It's just fluff. It's just smoke and mirrors, if you wish. 
if God is not the creator. If God did not create the world, this makes no sense. And, you know, in, in our time, in the last 150 years, it's sort of been reduced to sort of evolution versus creationism. And, and people trying to get into scientific arguments. I'll leave that for other people. What I would tell you is that what John describes here as being the presence of God in which God is worshipped, if God is not the creator, this is a joke. This makes no sense whatsoever. It is only because he is the creator and he created by his will. He did what he wanted. That now we understand why the poor creatures are always saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then we hear the elders, we see them falling down, giving their crowns to him and acknowledging that he is worthy to receive honor, glory and power. When we studied the book of Job, we, at the beginning we looked at the whole issue of wisdom literature. Uh, and I said then, if God is not the creator, I mean, that's one of the things that is assumed. If you do not believe that God is a creator, then these books make no sense. The book of Job makes no sense whatsoever if God is not the creator. Well, now here we are at the end of the Bible, the last book in the Bible. And with John, we, we, John describes to us, he's brought into the presence of God. And what is it that he sees? The glory of God, the fact that God is the creator. And because he is the creator, he is to be worshipped. That's why we are here today. That's why we come together every Sunday. But we're not the only ones who worship. All creation. It is only, it seems, God's, those made in his image, those God's image bearers, who oftentimes do not participate in worship. Those who see themselves as self-sufficient. But the new creatures, those who have had their eyes opened, represented by the 24 elders, we are to worship God. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that this wonderful passage in many ways is somewhat, we feel somewhat detached from it people of this culture and of this age. It's hard for us to imagine being awed, being filled with wonder at something. I think it's even harder for us to imagine falling down on our faces to show respect and honor it's because of the time in which we live. We thank you for what John wrote, for what he saw, for what he conveys to us. Of being in your presence as you will show him what is to come. What John sees there is creation and the new creation, the church, worshiping you. And as a part of your church, the body of Christ, we want to join in. We want to say that you are worthy of glory, honor, and power. That you are the creator. By your grace, we want to worship you.
And we are kings and priests because of what Jesus has done. By his blood, he has freed us from our sins. And on this day, at this time, we remember with thanksgiving his sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is our custom at this time to sing the doxology together. But before we do, if you have a chance, look at your hymnal. It's in the front cover. And, and do you notice that what we sing every Sunday is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. These are represented by the cherubim. So we join in with that praise when we sing this doxology together. It's not just us, but we join in with all of God's creation and his new creation in worshiping him. 
Would you stand please together as we sing the dance song? loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.